pardon. You want to get out your sermon outline, have that to follow along. It's good to see everybody here today. I'm glad that you are here. Seems like it got real quiet. I don't know why. So, but we're glad you're here. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and the great emphasis in Exodus is that God delivers his people in order that they might worship him. We're saved in order to worship. And this term, worship or service, appears over and over and over again uh, throughout Exodus. Last week we saw the two final objections. Of Moses, he protests to the Lord. He's not eloquent. He's not a good speaker. And then says, Lord, uh, please send somebody else. You know, the famous, here I am, send Aaron response. And so we saw that Moses is the sinful, weak person, and God's going to use him to accomplish his purpose. And that God's message is powerful, even apart from the messenger. And that God himself is always and only our Savior. And he can use Moses, and he can use people like you and me, but God himself is the deliverer, the rescuer, the Savior, the Redeemer. And that brings us to Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. And this is not an easy passage. This is one of those harder to understand passages, but it is God's word for you, so please give it your full attention. Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For it, it is a strange word, a mysterious word. It's we have sort of five 
things that happen in a row. This thing happened, then this thing happened, then this thing happened, then this thing happened, and it doesn't seem like any of them are connected. And so that's sort of the setting as we go in, but before we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word, and we need it. We need it as much as the people of Exodus needed it. We need to be reminded of what makes God great, what gives God glory, why God is sovereign. And Lord, this passage is rich with truth, it's significant, and it's also mysterious and strange and hard to understand. So open our eyes to help us to understand, reveal yourself by it, teach us, instruct us, correct us, tame our hearts, draw us to yourself as your word is proclaimed, So we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite movies is the 2003 version of The Italian Job. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a crime drama, not too fancy, sort of a low-budget bond with a lot more laughs. And one of my favorite scenes is right at the beginning of the movie. Two of the main characters are in Venice, Italy. Love Venice. Their names are John and Charlie. And they're standing in front of one of the great uh, palaces in Venice with huge columns in the front. And the following conversation takes place. Uh, John starts, says, I feel so optimistic. How do you feel? They're, they're actually getting ready to rob somebody. They're thieves. And Charlie says, I'm fine. John says, fine. You know what fine stands for, don't you? Yeah, unfortunately. Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. John says, you see those columns behind you? He says, what about them? He says, that's where they used to string up thieves who felt fine. He says, after you. Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So the next time your wife says, I'm fine, you now know exactly what she means. Well, we've come to the end of Exodus 4, and we're going to see that Moses' wife has an I'm fine moment. It's a strange passage. And we'll see that in this case, being freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional is completely understandable. The other day I was reading a blog by another pastor And I thought what he wrote was very applicable uh, to this passage and this whole issue. He says, a friend of mine, he was visiting a friend, and uh, they were together visiting a third friend. He says, my friend went around straightening all the pictures in this other person's room and straightening the curtains. And I'm tempted to label him uh, OCD, which anybody who is OCD would know it really should be CDO, so the letters are in alphabetical order like they should be. But for the rest of you, those CDs. But he's simply, he's not, he's simply a person who has a keen eye for incongruity. And that means things that don't seem to fit. Incongruity is when things don't fit. Something's wrong. Something's out of place. And he sees things that don't fit, and when he can, he does something about them. Most of us live regularly with things that don't fit. We may not even see them. We may not be conscious of them, 
but we usually feel them. I mean, there's a whole movement of interior decorating that promises to minimize the feelings of incongruity that we can feel at home or at work. The idea is that incongruity adds to our stress, even when we don't know it. And when something is wrong in your world, what should you do? You can't see it, you know it's there. Something isn't right. You sort of feel it inside. It's not pain, but it's sort of discomfort. You know, a sense that things aren't what they should be. Maybe it's something with your child. Nothing you can point to, but something's worrying you. And you say, you know, something's going on uh, with him or with her. Um, maybe it's something in your marriage. You know, you don't want to admit the feeling. You know, you shrug it off over and over and over. You tell yourself everything's okay. You reinterpret the words that were said, the discovery you made. You blame the suspicion on yourself. You convince yourself that you're fine. He didn't say what you thought you heard. She couldn't have meant that. We want things to be okay. We're invested in things being okay. We don't want to have to deal with things that aren't okay. And yet at those moments, part of us knows something's not okay. And when we experience this within ourselves, we discover something called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the technical term for being freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. It's actually something that means you have two competing harmonies, like listening to two songs at the same time. That's really hard to do. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You've got two completely different songs. It's kind of like, you know, one's opera and one's country. It's not working. And the attempt is uncomfortable, and so you've got to figure out, how am I going to adjust? We sense something's wrong, this incongruity. But sometimes you just convince yourself, it's okay. It's not worth it. You know, it's just me. Our brains do this all the time with sounds and smells, sometimes even sights. You can work all day in a certain room without noticing the hum of the fluorescent lights until somebody turns them off. And you all know the relief when that hum is gone, but you didn't notice it before. Your brain does this all the time because you have to focus. It categorizes the sounds of ticking clocks and whirring fans and humming lights as understandable and not important. The stress is there, but it's not uncomfortable, at least not as if you had to focus on that. We get this in relationships. We hear things that are said, and we let it go. It's not just forgiveness, it's self-preservation. And with some people, you have to let go of a lot. They give orders rather than requests. They tear down rather than build up. Perhaps they speak with a mean spirit instead of a kind spirit. And we let him, and we excuse him, and we can feel that incongruity, something's not right here, but we just let it go. But what do you do when one person is letting it go, and the other person can't? One person doesn't notice it, they've adjusted their perception, it doesn't bother them, and they let it go. But the other person, your spouse, your boss, your kid, your parent, they notice something's wrong, something doesn't fit, something's not right. And they think something has to be done. 
obviously not talking about your house, but some houses, somewhere. And one person says, don't worry about it. The other is like, no, we got to fix it. Something has to be done. That's the situation here in Exodus 4. A lot of good things are happening. Things are getting better. Moses has talked with God. Things are moving forward. All his excuses have been answered. His objections have been resolved. But there's a problem. And it's a big problem. It doesn't fit with the rest of the story. And Moses is content to let it go. He's told himself it doesn't really matter. But it matters to his wife. She knows this problem is serious. We have to do something. It has to be dealt with. It needs to be fixed. She's freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, and something has to be done. So, let's turn to Exodus 4. Let's see what's going on. As I said, some good things are happening here. It starts off well with a blessing. Verse 18, just sort of have key words today. First one is blessing there. Hopefully all the blanks are there. Sometimes I forget and leave the words. Um, but it's blessing, verse, starting at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life were dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. So here we're told that Moses' preparations to return to Egypt. God has to command Moses to go. He goes with the assurance of God. Clearly he's fearful of what lies ahead, but he's going dependent on the power of God. In other words, it's very clear that God is the one who's redeeming his people. Moses is his spokesman his messenger, his mediator, but it's the power of God that's at work. It's the heart of God for his people that's going to lead to their redemption. Look again at verse 18. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. You have to remember, when God met Moses in the wilderness, he was a shepherd, which meant he had sheep with him in the desert. So he can't just leave and go to Egypt. He has to take the sheep back home to Jethro, his father-in-law. And so that's what's going on. He's taking the flocks back. And he at least shows the courtesy of seeking his father-in-law's blessing before going on this journey. Follows the traditional custom, speaks very well of Moses. But it's interesting. If you look at verse 18, Moses doesn't tell Jethro the whole story. Or at least he doesn't tell us that he told Jethro the whole story. And I'm, you know, I can't help but wondering, all we get is that Jethro says, go in peace. But we don't know what Jethro's thinking. And I can't help but wondering, he's thinking, Moses is crazy for doing this. You know, it doesn't, he doesn't explain it. It's not like, oh, by the way, I just talked with God. And he told me to go. He just says, I have to go. I have to check on my people. And he says, go in peace. Okay. Whatever the reason, what Moses says is, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see if they're still alive. 
He's concerned for the welfare of his people back in Egypt. He wants to see how they're faring in Egypt since he left them some 40 years ago. And in verse 19, we have the Lord coming to Moses. He gets the blessing. He heads on his way. God shows up. He's still in Midian. Assures him of God's purposes for him. God assures Moses that those who sought to kill him are now dead, which means there's a new pharaoh. Coast is clear. Go back to Egypt. But then God gives him a promise, and it's kind of a weird promise. There's a lot of weird in this story. It's a promise. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So in verse 21, God tells Moses to confront Pharaoh with the miraculous signs. And God announces his intentions to Moses, but then he tells Moses he plans to harden Pharaoh's heart. We're going to hear about this a number of times in Exodus. But what he's telling us is the book of Exodus is about the sovereignty of God. It's about worshiping God. It's about God's kingdom and Pharaoh's in the way. God is telling Moses not only what he wants him to do, but he's also telling him that he plans to harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 21, Moses confront Pharaoh with these signs, these miracles, but let me tell you something ahead of time. Look at the end of verse 21. He tells Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen to his pleas. He's not going to be impressed by the signs. He's not going to let Israel go. Now, Moses, you go and tell this to Pharaoh, but he's not going to listen to you. Now, how would that have made you feel if you were the messenger? Moses, I want you to go, but you're going to be totally ineffective in your proclamation. Pharaoh's not going to do anything that you ask him to. In fact, I have decreed that Pharaoh is not going to respond to what I have decreed you to tell him. I told you it was weird. God doesn't simply tell Moses that Pharaoh won't listen or that Pharaoh won't let his people go. He goes a step farther. He says that he himself, God, is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And we see a display of God's sovereignty. And in this story of Moses and Pharaoh over the next several chapters... This idea of hardening Pharaoh's heart is going to be used in three different ways. It actually comes up about eight times. But it's going to be used in three different ways. The first will be, as we have here, that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. The second, it's going to be said that Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. And third, it's just going to be said Pharaoh's heart got hard. Basically, just going to matter of fact, this is what happened. So the first one... God hardening Pharaoh's heart, describing God's sovereignty. The second one, Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart, describes man's responsibility. And the third one is just describing what happened. Pharaoh's heart got hard. So what does all that mean? Well, clearly here, 
we have the first instance, we see God's sovereignty in hardening Pharaoh's heart. God deliberately sends Moses to Egypt to make a spectacle of Pharaoh. God told Moses already that he would do this. If you go back to Exodus 3 and look at verses 19 through 20, God is speaking, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So God's already told Moses what's going on. God tells him he knows Pharaoh's going to have to be compelled to let Israel go. But he's gone farther. He tells Moses he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let his people go. And it's showing God's complete control over the situation. He will deliver the people in the way that he wants to and in the time that he wants to deliver the people. We've got very interesting here. John Curate is an Old Testament professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary uh, where I teach. He actually teaches in Jackson, uh, Mississippi. But he's done this big study on this phrase, the hardening of the heart, particularly as it applies to Pharaoh. And he says this phrase is literally translated I will make his heart heavy. And apparently it's an allusion to Egyptian beliefs about the afterlife. The ancient Egyptians believed that those whose hearts were weighed and found heavy in the afterlife were condemned. Those whose hearts were weighed and found light in the afterlife uh, were blessed. So you see what Moses is saying. God is so sovereign that he has determined in advance that the God of Egypt, Pharaoh, will be condemned in the afterlife. The God of Israel has made that judgment over Pharaoh, over this embodiment of the Egyptian gods, and God wants everyone to know that God and God alone is sovereign. Although the Egyptians considered Pharaoh to be a god, yet it's the God of Israel who is so sovereign to make heavy the heart of Egypt's God, leading to eternal condemnation. Then look at verses 22 and 23. God tells Moses to let Pharaoh know about the special relationship that Israel has with God. Or rather, the special relationship that God has with Israel. Israel is his firstborn. Three things about this. First, we see a phrase here in verse 22 that has never been used before in the Bible. But it's going to be used hundreds and hundreds of times from now on. And it's the phrase, thus says the Lord. Or even better in the King James, thus saith the Lord. It just sounds better. It's a classic formula whereby a prophet announces that he's delivering the words of God verbatim. Everyone in the ancient Near East would have understood that when the prophet entered the room and announced, thus saith the Lord, he's claiming to speak not his own words, not his own ideas, but the very words of the God who sent him. And so in this passage, Moses is to announce to Pharaoh that what's about to be spoken are the very words of the God of Israel. Sort of putting him on notice. Second, look at what that word is. He says, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn. The status of being firstborn is one of tremendous importance in the ancient world. It's pretty important in some parts of the world uh, today, but it was tremendous importance 
and the ancient Near East. It meant that you, were, you got headship of the family upon your father's death. It meant you received the double portion of the inheritance. And this is the only place in the entire Old Testament where Israel is identified as the firstborn of God. Now this image of the preeminence of Israel amongst all the other nations as the firstborn is going to be transferred to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who has preeminence above all things. We see in Colossians 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Colossians 1 says Jesus is firstborn when it comes to creation, and Jesus is firstborn when it comes to redemption when it comes to the resurrection. He's firstborn at both ends. And so just as he would do years later with Jesus, so now God is announcing, he's given that title to Israel. His people have a unique relationship with him, gives them preeminence over all other peoples. And third, God says to Pharaoh, very end of verse 23, I will kill your son. Your firstborn, because you haven't listened to me. Now, I may be going out on a limb here. I don't think so. But that's not the most politically correct thing that Moses could say to the most powerful person on the planet. You know, this is their, his first meeting with Pharaoh. Let my people go. I know you're not going to do that. Oh, by the way... God's going to kill your firstborn son. Just saying. God has given Moses these words to speak to Pharaoh. But you have to understand, this is a direct threat. This is an assault on the royal succession of Egypt. In other words, Moses is saying to Pharaoh that my God is going to determine who sits on your throne. And he has determined that your firstborn son is not going to be the one who sits on your throne. It's a pretty shocking announcement to the most powerful monarch in the world. Of course, it's sort of a pre-announcement of the final plague, isn't it? The plague of death in Egypt. What Pharaoh didn't know, and perhaps couldn't have known, was that this judgment is going to be even more severe than simply a judgment against his own son. It's going to mean the loss of all the firstborn of Egypt. We'll see that in Exodus 11 and 12. So what's the point of this section? God's sovereign. The God of Israel is sovereign. It's God who determines who sits on the throne of Egypt. Moses needs to be aware of that. The people need to be aware of that. Pharaoh needs to be aware of that. And this announcement of that to Egypt is one of the central themes of Moses' encounters with Pharaoh. Whatever comes up, there's this constant reminder. My God is the real God. You're not a real God. All the rest of your gods aren't the real God. My God's the real God. My God's the Lord. My God's the sovereign. My God's the king. And that comes over again and again 
and again. Egypt has to learn that this God, the God of Israel, is the real God, that he's the sovereign. But now we come to what I call the cognitive dissonance part. Now we see what I'm fine looks like. Because now there's a big problem. And it's Moses' lack of obedience. Look at verse 24. Obedience. It says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. Surely this is the weirdest part of the passage. You have to ask yourself, what's going on? Moses is sent by God, he's convinced of God, everything, and now he's almost killed by God. It seems to me we're being told that God is holy and not to be trifled with. Why does God seek to kill Moses? Because Moses has been disobedient to the commandment of God. This strange event at a lodging place on the way in which God seeks to kill Moses illustrates both the significance of the covenant signs and the importance of obedience. Moses is the divinely appointed spokesman for God. And yet he had not obeyed all the commands of God, particularly this one from Genesis 17, which was the part of the giving of the covenant and the particular command to circumcise his son. And God is not going to allow such a blatant lawbreaker to deliver the law to his people at Sinai. He's not going to allow the covenant sign of circumcision to be taken lightly. Integrity and obedience have to characterize his prophets. Holiness is the clothing that God's people wear when they serve him, especially those who he calls to represent him before all the people. So here in Exodus 4, we see God seeking judgment against Moses because of his disobedience. Second, we see God, uh, not for the first time in the book of Exodus, he shows his sovereignty by bringing deliverance through a woman. A long time ago, I told you, all the heroes in the first five chapters are women. And here it is again. God's sovereignty clearly displayed this way through the first four chapters of Exodus. Remember, we saw God frustrate the power of Pharaoh through using a number of godly women over and over again in the early chapters of Exodus. Here, however, something even more striking happens. Moses' wife has a I'm fine moment. She realizes God seeks to put Moses to death. And immediately she becomes freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. She grabs a flint knife, circumcises her son, and throws the bloody tissue on Moses' feet. Hello! Rule number one of Exodus, don't upset Zipporah. The modern American translation, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. 
I'm pretty sure Gershom, Moses' son, he ain't happy. Pretty much guarantee that. The reason this ritual is done at an age where you can't remember anything. Not Gershom, we're talking nightmares for life. Just saying. But she acts. In his commentary, Rabbi Burton Visofsky, he says, this is a Jewish rabbi, teaches at the Jewish seminary in New York City. He says, Zabora sees the danger that lies ahead. It may well be that she and her children are endangered by Moses' mission. When she takes the flint in hand, she acknowledges the power of the covenant. We should pause for a moment to marvel at Zipporah. She's not an Israelite, she's a Midianite. And so far she's been fairly meek and mild. Unable to withstand the shepherd, she looked to Moses for support. Relating the events to her father, he scolded her for not inviting Moses home. She's given to Moses in marriage and it appears that she passively acquiesces and just as passively bears him children. Yet the moment that her husband and her child are threatened, Zipporah grabs a knife, jumps into the breach, and takes on God. In the midst of what's a very male narrative filled with blood and death threats, Zipporah acts decisively to save Moses and thus saves the future of Israel. That's what's going on here. It's a quick reminder that the sign of the covenant, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament, is not to be neglected. Not then, not now. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, tells us neglect of this sacrament is a great sin. It's a sign of membership in the people of God. The outward seal of God's very great and precious promises. So if you haven't baptized your children or uh, if you haven't been baptized yourself, please come talk to me. God takes this way more seriously than we do. And on the back of your insert, there's a quick 60-second uh, guide to uh, baptism. I know we got people coming from all different traditions, but please take this seriously. Back to the text. Moses' wife, Zipporah, is God's chosen instrument to spare Moses, not from Pharaoh, but from God himself. Zipporah performs immediate emergency and reality, life-saving surgery, circumcises her son, touches Moses' feet with the bloody results. It seems to be a way to identify Moses with her act. I want this to be considered as though Moses has done it. This is the fulfillment of Moses' obligation to obey God in order that Moses might live. By means of blood, she rescues her bridegroom and receives him back. She says, a bridegroom of blood, you are now to me. It's not clear exactly what she means. What is clear is her actions save Moses' life. She saves his life. Her son receives the sign of the covenant, and the blood that's placed upon Moses delivers Moses from death. Now there's about 15 things in this whole passage that point forward to Christ. And I don't have time to go over all of them, but certainly being saved by the blood is one of them. And so Zipporah becomes an intercessor, a mediator for Moses, whom God has appointed to be the intercessor and the mediator for Israel. You imagine a more striking way 
for God to simultaneously display his holiness and yet his grace. He's sending this sinful man into Egypt who himself needs forgiveness and his wife mediates for him by carrying out the obedience that he should have done himself. God is holy, God is sovereign, God is the redeemer, and God governs and sustains by his providence. That's the next uh, blank in your outline, providence. Verses 27 and 28. We read, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Notice the shift there. We're at a lodging place on the way. All this weird stuff happens, and now all of a sudden we're talking Aaron. Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So we went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. So we see now the brothers, Aaron and Moses, Meet in the wilderness, they prepare for the mission, and Zipporah drops out of the story. She doesn't come back for 14 chapters. She has saved Moses, and her main job is now done. And by saving Moses, she saved Israel. Not sure she knew all that at the time, but that's the reality of what happens. So Zipporah leaves stage left. Aaron enters stage right, now main character for quite a while. So they show up, and this encourages Moses. God's providence, bringing Aaron, is an encouragement to Moses. By divine revelation, the Lord comes to Aaron, verse 27, tells him to meet Moses. Remember, Moses asked for a spokesman. God gives him Aaron. But Moses doesn't have to seek him out. God does that for him. What an encouragement that should have been to Moses. He doesn't have to go find his brother. God has already spoken to his brother, and his brother has found him. He's not only found him, he finds him at the mountain of God. Same place where God met with Moses, where God revealed himself to Moses, where God revealed his plan to Moses, where God revealed his name to Moses, uh, where God had revealed Moses' role in his plan, where God had revealed all the words that Moses was going to say, where God had revealed all the signs that Moses was going to do. And so now, that's where they meet. It's really at this special holy place. And Moses tells Aaron everything that God has told him to say. And he shows him the signs that God has given him. Facing this huge challenge... Moses is surely encouraged by the providence of God, indicating that God's with him, that God's looking out for him, that God's going to provide for him. And so I think we need to look for the providence of God in our own lives. And when we see it, we should be encouraged by it and be thankful for it, even if it's not what we want, not what we expect, and not what we ask for. You look for the providence of God in your life? Do you see the encouragement that God has unfolded in your life? Whether he's called you to some spe specific mission, or he's simply called you to faithfulness, to obedience. You look for the signs of God's encouragement in that. I think if you do, you're going to find ample opportunity to thank God. 
And if you don't, you will miss those opportunities to thank God. And that will actually weaken your faith. Because this very process of thanking God for his providence and for his encouraging things that he's done, you're, you're reminded that God is active, that God is working in your life, that God hasn't forgotten me. That should be an encouragement to build your faith. That's how God encouraged Moses. That's how God encourages us today. Through his providence, his ongoing activity in everyday life. And when we recognize that, and when we're encouraged by that, when we're thankful for that, it builds our faith. And that's the last blank for you today. Faith. Verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So now we're at the end of the passage. We see that Aaron speaks to the elders. Moses performs the signs before the people. And it's becoming clear, even in these three little verses, that the people's biggest challenge in the Exodus is still ahead of them. The people's biggest challenge in all the trials still ahead of them is going to be one of faith. These trials start in the very next chapter. And they've already endured a lot, 400 years of slavery. But now the temperature is going to get turned up. God's redemptive work has begun, and things don't get better, they get worse. And the biggest challenge is not going to be Pharaoh, and it's not going to be the slave masters, the taskmasters. The biggest challenge for the children of Israel is to believe God's word. That's the biggest challenge they have before them. And we're going to see that challenge show up again and again and again. Let me explain. In verse 29, Moses and Aaron gather. They speak to the elders of Israel, the representatives of the people. God told Moses he was to speak to them, to reveal God's plan, to show them the signs that they might recognize that God's appointed Moses uh, as the deliverer of his people. And in verse 30, we're told that Aaron and Moses did exactly what God told them to do. Spoke the word of the Lord to them. Perform the signs. Four things here that Moses and Aaron have done. One, they set off for Egypt in obedience to God's command. Two, they gather the elders, verse 29, in obedience to God's command. Three, they speak all the words of the Lord to them, verse 30, in obedience to God's command. <coughs> and they do the signs, verse 30, in obedience to God's command. It seems to be sort of presupposing here Israel's going to have a hard time believing God's plan, believing God's promises, believing God's word. Why would showing the signs be needed if there isn't going to be a struggle to believe on the part of Israel? And you know, if you've read ahead at all, you've read Exodus before, you've seen the movie, this happens precisely what happens. God grants signs because of the weakness of their faith. shouldn't be surprising then. They meet troubles regarding their faith again and again and again. And we meet troubles regarding our faith again and again and again. 
God is preparing the people of Israel then to deal with this issue of faith, just as he's preparing us now to deal with this same issue of faith. Now, the initial response is very encouraging. Verse 31, the people believe what Moses announces. We could call this the gospel of Exodus. And they instinctively respond in worship to this message that the Lord's concerned about them and he's seen their affliction. And it's interesting that the core of this Exodus gospel is the same core of the gospel of Jesus. God has seen and is concerned for the affliction of his people, and so he sends a deliverer, a redeemer. New Testament, God has seen and is concerned for the affliction of his people, and so he sends a redeemer, a deliverer. And it moves the people of God to faith and to worship. In these verses, it's been announced by Moses and Aaron to the elders, the people of Israel, that the liberation of Israel has begun. And how great is their emotion at the thought of God coming to rescue his people. And Moses and Aaron announcing the liberation has started. But it's clear in all of this, the biggest challenge for Israel is going to believe God's word is true. Trials are going to get more difficult for them, not less. They're going to be tempted to discount what God has said. So the great challenge is to believe, to trust in God, to have faith in God. And it's exactly the same way for us today. You know, I've often noticed something. If you put someone in a really hard situation, in a difficult place, a tight spot, even for Christians, it's very easy for that person to think of themselves as the exception to the rule. I'm the one person that doesn't need to do it the way God said in his word because I'm different. My situation is entirely different. Yet the reality is we all know what we really need to do. We really need to trust God's word. He didn't make a mistake when he put down his promises. He didn't make a mistake when he put down his law. He knew what he was talking about. And he requires us to trust his word even when, and perhaps especially when, we can't see how it's going to turn out. And I don't care what circumstance you're in. You're in a difficult uh, marital circumstance. The main thing you need to do is trust God's word. If you're in a difficult job circumstance, the main thing you need to do is trust God's word. If you're in a difficult school circumstance, if things are falling down all around you, the main thing you have to do is trust God's word. It's always the biggest challenge for God's people. And here, Pharaoh makes it seem like a huge challenge. Now let me say over the next few chapters, God's going to make a mockery of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to be shown to be a fool. But Pharaoh isn't Israel's problem. Israel is Israel's problem. And God's going to manifest himself in glory in Israel through teaching them that he is worth trusting. When he says it, he'll do it. And that's the great challenge, to trust the Lord. That's our great challenge as well. Collapsing culture isn't our greatest challenge. The relational challenges we face at home, at work, at school are not our greatest challenge. 
even experience cognitive dissonance in those moments when I'm fine don't constitute our greatest challenge. I think it's clear that in all of this, the biggest challenge for us is believing that God's word is true. Trials are going to get more difficult for us, not less. And we're going to be tempted to discount what God has said. And so the greatest challenge for us is to believe God, to trust in God, to have faith in God. Think about that. Pray for that. Start now. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Help us to pray as the man who came to you in the gospel said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help us to realize that you are awesome in your might, wondrous in your plans. Help us to trust you in every circumstance of life, remembering what you've taught us about yourself in your word, how you revealed yourself to us in your promises, how you're active in our lives in your providence. For this we give you thanks. Build our faith in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.